also gather and meet together in the name of Jesus. We thank you that he's among us too. Lord, we thank you for strengthening us today by the word of God and through your precious Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. There are some things that are going on around us in the world that we live in that I think it's important for us on occasion, frequently at least, to take a look at what the Bible says about the last days and what we can expect and how to conduct ourselves. 2 Timothy chapter 3 is Paul writing to Timothy, his son in the faith, probably the individual he is closest to of anybody that we have record of in the Scripture. And he's talking to him about the last days. Verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. Now this word perilous means dangerous, but it also means something else. It means strength-reducing. Strength-reducing. The last days at least have the potential. They're designed by the enemy. To sap you and I of strength, spiritual strength. Now, whether or not that takes place is up to us, up to you and up to me. He can't just make it happen. But it's important for us to understand how he works, to know the devices of the enemy so that we can stand against what he's doing. So this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, strength-reducing times. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof, from such turn away. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. Every one of these activities, every one of these uh, actions, these sinful actions, is a result of a lack of character. These are all character traits, character issues. Can you see that? Now, here's the question. How can a lack of character on part of somebody else reduce you and I of strength? Paul is warning us not to get swept up in the things of the world. He's warning us not to succumb to the world's lack of character and be adversely affected spiritually by it. Now, I want you also to turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Jesus said some important things about the last days. We'll start in verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye, all, see ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another, and that shall not be thrown down. The disciples were impressed with, with Herod's temple. Now the Bible talks about two different temples that were uh, uh, constructed at God's behest. The first was Solomon's temple. And you remember when they dedicated the temple in Solomon's day, the glory of the Lord filled the place to such a degree that the people, the priests, couldn't stand to minister. Everybody just fell on their face. It was something that pleased God. David was the one, you remember, that wanted to build the temple, but God wouldn't let him. So it was built in Solomon's day. Now, when the Babylonians came and destroyed the temple, Hezekiah came along, and God gave him favor with his captors and with the ones that had enslaved Israel and so he rebuilt the temple but when he rebuilt the temple there were still people that were old enough to have seen and remembered the first temple so when they dedicated the second temple the people that had seen the first one wept because of the, the absence of glory in that temple Solomon's temple was something that God gave specific instruction and they had great wealth 
to furnish the temple and to build it just exactly the way God wanted it to happen. But that wasn't true in the second temple days. And so the second temple was something that in the eyes of the people that were able to compare the first one with the second one, they counted it as nothing. Now, some years go by, many years go by, and Herod is placed in charge of the, uh, uh, the, to enforce the Roman law throughout Judea and Israel. And so Herod put a great deal of expense to build the temple that bears his name because it wasn't done for something related to God. He couldn't care less about God. He just wanted to do something to keep the Jews in line under his control. And so he built it as a monument to himself. Now that's the temple that Jesus entered into. That was what was in place when Jesus was here on the earth. And Jesus, well, how do I say it? He, he shunned the temple. Now that doesn't mean that the activities that went on there and the sacrifices that were made, those were all things that God had instructed to be done. But because it was temple, a temple that was dedicated to Herod and not to God, Jesus spoke very disparagingly of this temple. And that's what he's talking about when he says there won't be one stone left upon another. We know that that's what took place in 70 AD. The, the Romans finally destroyed Israel once and for all in their mind. And they took apart the temple and the reason there wasn't one stone left upon another is because in the building of Herod's temple, Herod had gold dust mixed in with the mortar between the stones and the, and the rocks. And so when Rome came in 70 AD and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, they took it apart block by block, rock by rock to get a hold of the gold dust that was in the mortar. Now think about how precise what Jesus said turned out to be. He said, see all these things? In other words, all these worldly things that you're impressed with? There won't be left one rock standing on another. And that's exactly the way that it happened. Now when Jesus talks about these things, he goes into a discourse about the end of time verse 3 of Matthew 24, and as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, tell us, when shall these things be? He's just made a, a tremendous prediction, one that I'm sure was hard for them to accept. So they said, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? Now, folks, I want you to realize something. They're asking three different things based on what Jesus said about the temple. First thing they ask is, when is that going to happen? Well, it happened in 70 AD. But then the next two things that, that they asked about, they said, what is the sign of your coming? What is the sign of your coming? Notice that they put, and they understood that there were two different things about Jesus returning. What shall be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world? Now, we don't know, and we don't have any way to know, whether or not they were skilled enough in the Old Testament prophecies to understand that God will send Jesus back for the church, what we know of as the rapture, but then also at the end of the tribulation, the seven years of tribulation, Jesus is coming back at the end of the world or what's referred to here as at the end of the world. So they are asking questions and Matthew at least gives us a record of it so that anybody reading this would see the two different events. So three things they asked about, when shall these things be? When shall the temple be destroyed? What shall be the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, take heed that no man deceive you. Now, I spent a lot of time, many years, just reading over that verse of Scripture as if Jesus is using it as an introduction for what he's really going to say that's important. But folks, I have come to realize more and more, more specifically than ever before, 
that take heed that no man deceive you is a reference to the entirety of the deception that will be in place in the last days. The most important thing Jesus says here about the time is take heed that no man deceive you. Now, how are we going to keep from being deceived? We're going to have to renew our minds to the word. And folks, it's never been more important than it is in these last days. There's never been a more important time for you to feed on the word of God, school yourself in the word of God so that no matter what happens, the first thing you ask is what does the word say? I used to think a renewed mind was a mind that understood everything about the Bible. Well, that's kind of a daunting task because it's a pretty big book and there's a lot to read and a lot of what you read, especially from the Old Testament, can be hard to understand. But when I realized that the renewed mind is not the mind that knows everything about the Bible, the renewed mind is the mind that says first and foremost, no matter what circumstance arises, no matter what the situation is that we're in, the renewed mind says, what does the word say? And if it doesn't know, it finds out. So he says, take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Now, folks, that's a tough scripture. Because he says, there will be some that come in his name. Well, that means his name would be known then. And they would come in his name saying, I am the Christ. Now, how can they be coming in the name of Jesus if they're claiming to be Jesus? I believe we can see the answer in this to be that many people will come in the name of Jesus talking about their being sent by God and then tell us what God is like or what Jesus would do separate from and in contradiction to what the Bible says. Folks, I've got to tell you, I'm getting tired of Christians telling me that I shouldn't vote for Trump because he's immoral while they're supporting the party that stands for and defends and, and pushes the murder of unborn babies in the millions. I just don't think I want to be lectured by those folks. But you got a lot of people that are saying, here's what Jesus would do. If Jesus was here, he'd be for open borders. If Jesus was here, he'd be interested in love for all. Well, folks, there's a couple of things that we need to remember or keep in mind. One is, heaven's got a wall around it. The Bible talks about the walls of heaven. It talks about the gates, the 12 gates of heaven. Now, folks, I really don't think God's worried about the devil invading his territory, do you? But the Bible says specifically that the way to heaven is narrow and straight, and a lot of people miss out on it. The Bible tells us that God wills for every man to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But the only way to do that is to believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead and confess him as your Lord and Savior. In other words, God's great love doesn't let you make it up your own for yourself any way you want it to be. In that sense, heaven very definitely has borders. It's amazing, and it seems like it's more than me. It seems to me like it's happening more often than ever before. And I don't know, I'm sure I pay more attention to it now than I used to. But it's amazing to me how many people are claiming to have God on their side for political purposes. When this joke of the impeachment took place, you remember Nancy Pelosi saying that she had prayerfully considered this? 
I assume that's the same prayerful consideration she gives to supporting the, the murder of unborn babies. I got to tell you something, folks. One of the, the most shocking things that's happening in me or with me related to me in these last days is the compassion that I have for people that are just absolutely evil. Nancy Pelosi is facing eternity, staring it in the face. Now, apart from the love of God, apart from the compassion of the Lord, I wouldn't have any problem whatsoever hating Nancy Pelosi with a vengeance because of what she stands for, because of what she does, and especially because she invokes, at these certain times, she invokes the name of God to do it and to cover for what she's doing. But I can't hate the woman. Every time she does something that's a living example of evil, that compassion of the Lord floods me, and I pray for her salvation. So Jesus says, take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Folks, everybody that says what they're doing is of God isn't really of God. And you and I have a responsibility to be wise enough, to be grounded in the word enough, to be able to identify the truth from falsehood. And you shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. You see those, the word nation shall rise against nation? That's the word ethnos. It's where we get our word ethnic. So where it says nation shall rise against nations, it's not talking about countries. Kingdom against kingdoms is countries. But it's talking about race wars. It's talking about racial unrest. Nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. Folks, keep your eyes on this supernatural thing that's happening in Africa with these swarms of locusts. It's going to create and set the stage for a famine that may be greater than anything Africa's ever seen. Well, we know about earthquakes. We've got some experience with that. Pestilence is plague. It can mean sickness. It doesn't necessarily always mean sickness, but it can mean sickness. And look at what's happening with that. I read an article the other day. Uh, I think it was Saturday. I read an article that said that during January and February of this year, 20,000 people had died from the flu. Now, folks, that swamps whatever is taking place with the coronavirus. So why the hysteria about the coronavirus? I mean, if the news media wanted to make a big deal of things that are happening and difficulties around the world, that's easy. But to pick something and create a mass hysteria on purpose is a part of what we see taking place in the last days. I think we need to be prepared from going from one hysteria issue to another hysteria issue. I think it has to do, I think that the news media coverage in America has a lot to do with politics on their part. But the point is the same, and that is the devil's always trying to stir up trouble. He's always trying to make a lot of noise. Brother Hagin told about a, a vision he had where Jesus appeared to him and taught him about the devil and evil spirits and so forth. And he said this vision lasted for about an hour and a half. And about the one hour or 70 minute mark when the Lord was talking to him, Brother Hagin said that there was this evil spirit 
he called it a monkey-looking type thing. He said, and he stood in between Jesus and himself. And he started waving his arms, saying, yakety yak yak, yakety yak yak, making a lot of noise, and throwing out a smoke screen. And Brother Hagin said that the Lord continued to talk. He wasn't finished with the things that he had to say. But Brother Hagin could hear his voice, but couldn't make out what he was saying because of the, all the noise the devil was making. And he had a lot of questions about it. He said, these thoughts are running through my mind faster than machine gun bullets could fire. He said, doesn't the Lord know that I'm not getting this? Doesn't the Lord know that the devil is stirring up trouble here to keep me from getting the things that I need to hear? And let's face it, if you're having a vision of Jesus and he's talking to you, you would expect that to be pretty important to hear, wouldn't you? And so finally, in desperation, after Brother Hagin's asking within himself, why doesn't he do something about this? Why doesn't the Lord do something about this? Finally, Brother Hagin pointed to the thing and commanded him in the name of Jesus to stop. He said he fell and hit the floor instantly. He said the smoke screen began to dissipate and he commanded the thing to get out of there. And the Lord used that to show him more about our authority of the devil or along the lines of our authority of the devil. Jesus simply said, if you hadn't done something about that, I couldn't have. Well, Brother Hagin thought he was hearing things wrong. And so he questioned the Lord about it several times. And finally, the Lord got real strong with him and said, I said, if you hadn't done something about that, I couldn't have. I didn't say I wouldn't have. I said, I couldn't have. And Brother Hagin answered and says, now, that's different than anything I've ever heard. You're going to have to prove this to me from the Bible. And the Lord gave him, seven, um, gave him four different witnesses about where authority over the devil has been given to us, not him. That we're the ones that exercise authority on the earth and concerning things pertaining to the earth. I thought it was interesting, thinking back on that story, as I have for years now, I think it's interesting that it didn't matter what the devil said. He just tried to make a lot of noise. A lot of the noise that we get from the news media and the hysteria that's taking place about this coronavirus and what I believe will be about other things following it. It doesn't matter what the noise is as long as the noise can distract you from what's important. So Jesus says, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Please notice verse 12. And because iniquity shall abound. Because sin is going to be greater and greater and more and more prominent in the last days. Than it was even in the day that Jesus was here. Because iniquity will abound the love of God will wax cold well then we see very clearly what the devil's tactics are we see that the devil's tactics are to, to deceive and influence people to sin in great measure and again we could go back to the list in 2 Timothy chapter 3 these character issues that Paul identifies and enumerates, or we should say the Holy Ghost through Paul did. When those things begin to increase, the natural tendency is to just give up. The natural tendency is just withdraw, except that the world is going in the direction that it is. Because remember when Paul prayed concerning the Ephesians or prayed these prayers that the Holy Ghost gave him to pray for the Ephesians. In chapter 3, Paul prayed that we would be strengthened with might, that the family of God would be strengthened with might by his spirit in the inner man. 
that Christ may dwell in our heart by faith and that we being rooted and grounded in love will be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and depth and breadth and height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. See, folks, being filled with the fullness of God has everything to do with Christ dwelling in your heart by faith and knowing, experiencing it, and walking in the love of God. That's the fullness of God. I think a lot of times we think in different terms. We think that what we need is power. But Jesus didn't say, by my power, you, that all men shall know you're my disciples. He said that all men will know you're my disciples by your love. So anything the devil can do to make the love of God in you and me wax cold, then he's deceived us. He's brought us to the place where we, justifiably so, could say this world isn't worth caring about or the people in it. But that's not where God wants us to be. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. Now, when he's talking about saved here, he's got to be talking about not allowing the love of God in your heart to wax cold. That's the context that he speaks that. But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations. And then shall the end come. No matter how evil men get, no matter how disgusting the circumstances of our world become, this gospel shall be preached in all the world for a witness. That means with power and evidence. And then shall the end come. Now turn with me over to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21 is Luke's account of this same time. You can see when we start in verse 5, and some spake of the temple how it was adorned with goodly stones and gifts. And Jesus said, As for these things which you behold, the days will come in which there shall not be left one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And they asked him, saying, But when shall these things be? And what sign will there be when these things come to pass? So it's the same thing, same event. Same situation, but Luke throws a couple of things in there that's a little different for us. And he said, Take heed that you be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when you shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not yet. Now let's uh, skip down some verses that were covered by Luke, I mean by uh, Matthew. Notice verse 17, and you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Now, this is what he's talking about prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. He's telling them specifically the difficulty and the persecution that they're going to endure. But there shall not a hair of your head perish. Notice verse 19, in your patience possess you your souls. In your patience possess you your souls. Now, folks, remember that, uh, that James said, James chapter 1, brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. The word temptation there is the word test, trial, or affliction. What does he say next? Knowing this, here's how you count it joy when it's not joyful. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect in entire, wanting or lacking nothing. So patience is standing steadfast in the face of contradicting circumstances. And by that I mean circumstances that contradict what the Bible says. For example, sickness and disease would be a conflicting or uh, yeah, a conflicting circumstance, contrary circumstance. Because the Bible says that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. So the Bible is telling us, Jesus is telling us specifically, we need to develop it ourselves to advanced degrees of calling things that be not as though they are. 
which is what the Bible identifies Abraham's faith as, calling things that be not as though they are. No matter what it looks like, no matter what it feels like to us, the possession of your souls has to do with, and again, this is part of the renewing of the mind, it has to do with the understanding that no matter what it looks like, no matter what noise the devil is throwing up, no matter what distractions are around us, God's word is true no matter what. In your patience, possess you your souls. Then it speaks of some other things, the destruction of Jerusalem. And some of these things have to do with uh, um, tribulation events, not church age events. Skip down with me to verse 25. And there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity and the sea and the waves roaring. Let's read that again. There shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars. Now we know that the Bible talks about the sun turning red, or I'm sorry, the sun being blackened out before Jesus returns. And that's the end of tribulation type stuff. But the way that he says it does not limit it just to that. He could be talking about other things that are taking place. And folks, there are all kinds of things that are taking place that scientists are wondering about in the heavens. That could include some of this as well. And upon the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. Notice what the effect of that is in verse 26. Men's hearts failing them for fear. Men's hearts failing them for fear. It's talking about heart attacks. It's talking about people dying from heart attacks. And for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. Now as I said there are some things in tribulation. In uh, uh, the book of Revelation that tell us about tribulation days. The seven years of tribulation. And the things that happened there that certainly would qualify for this. But it seems to me, and again, I have to put kind of a qualifier on this. I grew up in the Baptist church, and we believe very much in the rapture. And I don't know if anybody ever said this or if it was just an assumption that I began to make. But I've had the idea all my life that if the rapture happened on Tuesday, then the tribulation began on, on Wednesday. I just always assumed because they were always talked about together. Jesus comes back for the church, the tribulation period starts. Now we know exactly when the tribulation period starts. We know that it's, that it's uh, set upon by the war where Russia and Iran, Persia, and other mostly Muslim nations invade Israel from the north through Lebanon. We know that that takes place because the Bible identifies the seven years of the tribulation from that point to the end when Jesus comes back. But there's nothing that requires, there's nothing in the Bible that requires that invasion of Russia and the enemy armies in Isaiah 38 and 39. There's nothing that identifies that that has to be immediately, or I'm sorry, that the rapture has to be immediately before those, that war begins. There's nothing in the Bible that tells us that there couldn't be a period of time between the rapture and the tribulation. Because the tribulation doesn't begin with the rapture. It begins with the coalition armies coming into Israel from the north through Lebanon and Syria. Now that was a big shock to me because I've always just assumed Rapture, tribulation, hand in hand, one immediately right after the other. But it's possible that there could be a period of time. Now, folks, when the Bible says that the Antichrist is being held back, Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians. The Antichrist is being held back by the presence of the church. 
Now think about what this means. The Bible's telling us that the power of the church, the authority of the church, who is seated in heavenly places at the right hand of God the Father with Jesus, that the power that we have, even though the use of that power may be limited, even though we may look at, and I, I have to confess I do, I look at the world, the church in the world, or the, the worldwide church, and think how in the world could God get anything done with, with the bunch of people that we can see and, and identify. But the very power that resides in us keeps the devil from bringing forth his most dastardly, the cherry on top of the Sunday type thing with the Antichrist coming forth. Well, then what would the world look like if the church was gone? If we and the power we have is sufficient to hold back the Antichrist from coming to the scene, then what in the world is the world going to look like when the church leaves? Gives us something interesting to think of, huh? Can you imagine how quickly the world would slide? Can you imagine the evil that would crop up immediately upon the church's exit? I don't have any doubt that men's hearts failing them for fear has to do with tribulation events. But it would also stand to reason that the same circumstances that will exist during the seven years of tribulation could also exist prior to the church's departure. I don't know. I guess we'll see when we get there. So, John, so Luke said, men's hearts failing them for fear and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken. The powers of heaven shall be shaken. What are we to do? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. First Peter chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 6. Peter, speaking by the Holy Ghost, said, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Now, folks, most Christians think that God's in the humbling business and that he wants us to be humbled so that we don't exalt ourselves. The problem with that is the Bible tells, tells us over and over again that the humbling ourselves is our job, not his. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. If God had a problem with you and I being exalted, why would the Bible promise that he's going to do it? Again, here's the old doctrine, fundamentalist doctrine. God humbles us so that we don't get lifted up in pride. That is totally unscriptural. Don't get me wrong. God doesn't want us lifted up in pride. But humbling ourselves just simply means to accept what God's word say, says is true to be true for us. For example, when the Bible says that we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, denominational thinking is that we should never press ourselves or confess ourselves to be righteous because we know how bad we really are. But do you remember that the Bible says that we're to cast down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God? Saying that you're unrighteous is a high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Because the Bible says that we've been made righteous. For us to say anything contrary to that or to disavow that 
because of some feelings that we have or some experiences we have. That's a high thing that we're supposed to cast out. Humbling yourself before God means accepting what he says to be true no matter what you think about it. No matter how it feels. No matter whether we think we're living up to it or not. Because you weren't made righteous because you lived up to it. You were made righteous because Jesus shed his blood. To humble yourselves before God is to accept that no matter what. If you're the only person in the world that accepts the truth, the reality that you've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus, that's humbling yourself before God. Now notice what the Bible says takes place. As we humble ourselves or accept the word of God to be true, no matter what it feels like or looks like or what our experience is, the Bible says God will exalt us in due time. Which simply means if you act on the word, no matter what it feels like or no matter what it looks like, if you act on the word, that word will exalt you because God's word is always true. So the earth, uh, the church in the world, has a totally opposite position on humility and exaltation than what the Bible speaks of. So Peter is writing. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober. The root word for sober is not moved by emotions. So he says, be sober. Don't, move by, don't be moved by emotions. Be vigilant. That means be diligent. It means keep your eyes open. Always be on the lookout. Because your, devil, your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now, this is a scripture that as a child used to scare the bejeebers out of me. Because I didn't know anything about authority. I didn't know God intended for us to have authority. We thought Jesus had all the authority. The Great Commission. Matthew 28, Jesus said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. We thought that's as far as it went. But in fact, Jesus delegated the authority on the earth to the disciples. He said, go ye therefore. Well, I didn't know anything like that when I was a kid. And so I had the idea that the devil was a lion. That he's just waiting to pick off people at his will. And bring destruction into their lives. But that's not what the Bible says. First of all, it doesn't say the devil is a lion. It says he's as a roaring lion. Now, how is the devil as or like a roaring lion? He roars. He roars. Has anybody ever been hurt by the roar of a lion? If I was a lion tamer, I wouldn't worry too much about the noise. I'd be a lot more interested in the teeth. Wouldn't you? Be sober, be vigilant. Don't let your emotions take you over. Don't be lax in your Christian life. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, roaring, seeking whom he may devour. Now, folks, this is an excellent translation. The words that are used here from the original Greek are spot on. And one of the words that's so important for us to see here is notice the devil seeking who he may devour. May is a word that denotes permission, doesn't it? My second grade teacher, apparently I had a bladder about the size of a pea. Because three or four times a day, I was raising my hand to ask Miss Belding, can I go to the bathroom? And every time she'd say, I don't know, can you? <laughs> now, I didn't get it, but I know that I didn't, wasn't given permission to go. So the second or third time it happened one day, I asked again, can I go to the bathroom? She says, I don't know, Mike, can you? Well, she saw the distress on my face, I guess. And she told me, used it for a, le a lesson for the whole class. She said, when you ask, can you, that means do you have the ability to? She said, I wouldn't know that. Only you would. What you're trying to say is, may I go to the restroom? Because that word may denotes permission. 
And that's what you're asking me for, isn't it? Aren't you asking for permission to go to the bathroom? Well, I've never forgotten that story. So here where the Bible says that the devil is as a roaring lion, he makes noise like a roaring lion, and he walks about seeking who will give him permission to devour them. Now, folks, this is inspired by the Holy Ghost. So it has to be accurate. If this verse of Scripture is not true, then we've got to tear this one out of our Bible, and we've got a lot more to tear out, too. So if the devil's seeking whom he may devour, he's looking for the people that will be bothered by his roar, frightened by his roar, and, in, and be paralyzed by it, and therefore give, them, give him permission to devour them. But you don't have to give the permission. And that's what Peter is saying by the Holy Ghost. Be sober, be vigilant, because your, devil, your adversary, the devil, has a roaring lion Walketh about seeking whom he may devour. What are we supposed to do? Verse 9. Whom resist? Steadfast in the faith or in your faith, knowing the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. In other words, he's saying it works this way for everybody. Don't be bothered by his roar. And instead of giving him permission to make good his threats, which is usually what he's roaring about, don't give him permission to devour you, but instead resist in the faith. Resist him with your faith. Now, faith begins where the will of God is known. Faith is believing God's word in your heart and saying it with your mouth. So when he's talking about resisting steadfast in your faith, he's talking about resisting him by the words that you speak based on what God's word promises. You remember Brother Hagin's story about the vision? When he commanded that evil spirit to stop and to leave, Jesus said, if you hadn't done something about that, I couldn't have. Why? Because man has authority on the earth over the devil. That's what Peter's telling us. There, there are other examples as well. But Peter is saying in no uncertain terms, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that we can keep the devil from devouring us. We can keep the devil from making good on his threats. We don't have to accept it into our lives. But instead, we can resist it by saying what the Word says. Two other scriptures I want you to see real quickly before we go. One is in Haggai chapter 2, verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Did you notice how many of the scriptures we've looked at this morning already have told us about the shaking? I will shake all nations, he said. He talks about the heavens and the earth, the sun and the moon being shaken. Well, this is talking about the same thing. So it's got to be talking about the end times. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. The desire of all nations is to sh shuck off the curse that came upon the earth because of Adam's sin. What brings that about? the manifestation of Jesus here on the earth. So the desire of all nations coming means Jesus coming back. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. For whatever reason you want to accept, the Bible talks about silver and gold as being part of the glory of the Lord in the last days. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Notice that last phrase. And in this place will I give peace. That's an implication or an insinuation that the only place people are going to find peace in the world in the last days is in the church. Isaiah 26, verse 3. 
Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusts in thee. Thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. What does that mean? That means the mind that is renewed to the word of God. No matter what it looks like, no matter what's happening around us, no matter what other people are falling unto. We keep our eyes on the Lord. We keep our eyes on his word. And he keeps us in perfect peace. Folks, peace is going to be one of the greatest commodities in this last day of the church. And God expects us to stand steadfast. When everything else around us is shaking, we stand steady. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. We thank you, Lord, that heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word will never fail. Because of that, we declare our authority over the enemy. And we say that nothing shall by any means hurt us. We bless you, Father. We thank you for keeping us in perfect peace because our minds are stayed on you. And the reason our minds are stayed on you is because we trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, we're going to have a prayer meeting here for a few minutes. So if you can't stay with us, then we would ask that you would go out into the lobby and fellowship out there out of respect to the ones that are going to pray. So let's all stand. Say this after me. God keeps me in perfect peace because my mind has stayed on him because I trust him.